am here today with an interview with Kerry King. Um, honestly, I've been pretty excited about, uh, we've already talked a couple of times and um, been excited to, uh, to do this program. So Kerry, thanks for uh, taking the time to chat today. You bet, Jim. My pleasure. Um, so we were going to talk about economic modeling and the transition to a clean economy and some of the, the issues around it. So before people's eyes glaze over with um, such concepts, why don't you give a little bit of background about where you come from and how did you get involved in this? Okay. Um, well, my, my educational background is in mechanical engineering, a bachelor's and PhD, both from University of Texas at Austin. Now I still work there. Uh, and in between, I had a stint at a startup company that was looking to make a new kind of flat panel display, doing uh, what we might call engineering work. And then I quit that job in 2006 uh, to get into energy systems modeling and understand uh, the energy system broadly and uh, got a position working back at the University of Texas and on some of these issues. And I've been here ever since. And um, over the last decade, I've been getting more and more involved in understanding how to think about the energy system broadly and the role of energy in the economy. And uh, over the last five years, been looking at how to think about macroeconomic modeling in this context. And I think that's what has brought us together somewhat. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I'm somebody who, in the work that I do, I watch Bloomberg 24-7, and, you know, the concepts that you kind of bring to life and some of the programs that you've run in terms of connecting up um, economic modeling with concepts around sustainability and energy, and the kicker for me is really tying it back to wages and kind of real life what matters to people. Um, is just absolutely stunning and exciting, I think. Uh, yeah, um, and some of the work I've done in the paper I'm working on now, and it's in a white paper that exists that I've uh, submitted to a journal, it, it does uh, end up making this link in sort of the first uh, attempt at, a, at a making a macroeconomic model from the ground up to try to hopefully solve some problems that exist in sort of the mainstream macroeconomic models, and one of these is, uh, it turns out that there's some insight uh, into linking of social outcomes like wages to uh, actual physical resource consumption. So there's always this, uh, I guess, tension or, or question of people studying physical flows of matter and energy, and whether they're sort of usually more physical science-oriented people. Uh, studying how energy flows around the economy and maybe mass materials and how these are used in making products and perhaps in the economy more broadly, but maybe they don't think about money that much and in particular concepts like debt and, and banking. And then the flip side is maybe most economists think about money and uh, how money flows around the economy. They may or may not think about debt and the fundamental dynamics associated with these processes in terms of thinking about time in a fundamental manner. And when I started thinking about all these things together, I thought, well, I, I need a way to put together physical flows of materials and energy, at least conceptually, with monetary flows like economists would normally do, uh, and put these two ideas together from the ground up uh, and see, uh, see see what I could find out. Uh, but 
but for the most part have a model that I think addressed certain deficiencies in current approaches. Uh, so, I, so I feel like I've done this at a core level now. At least I don't know what I'm doing wrong yet. <laughs> no, I mean, I, it's, it's really enlightening, and I think it's really exciting. Um, so tell us a little bit, like, what... If you could do like a five-minute synopsis of the model for people who haven't seen the videos for your descriptions of the model. Okay, I'll give that a shot. So the economic model for, um, well, I'll just say something quickly here. If anybody's familiar with the book, uh, The Limits to Growth, and, the, and that model that they had used back in the 1970s for the original book that was The Limits to Growth that came out, was using what's called system dynamics principles and their model is called World 3. Uh, if anyone's familiar with that, roughly speaking, I was trying to add money to a model that has that basic sort of concept behind it. They didn't explicitly model money. Uh, so, but in short, what my model is doing is posing that the economy, you have to start simple somewhere from the ground up, but have enough realistic pieces uh, to, to express the question of interest. And my question of interest is essentially what is the long-term role of resources in economic growth and what are the feedbacks that we might expect or how might we expect feedbacks from uh, resource uh, decline or, or uh, if we can't find more energy or if energy gets more expensive in some fundamental way, what are the feedbacks to the rest of the economy that we might expect from depleting resources or more costly resources, and this means essentially physical resources or energy itself or energy resources. So the model posits that there are at least two sectors, and I think it's important to have, in this sense, just more than one, but uh, at minimum two, in which one sector, economic sector, and the economy is modeled to be the sector whose job it is is to extract resources itself. So this is like the oil and gas sector or, or electricity, something like this, uh, the sense that it it has uh, capital, it, it owns machines. There's, there's, there's machines in the sector like drilling rigs or power plants, and it's, the job of these uh, machines is to extract resources, potentially convert them to other forms or energy and convert it to other forms and deliver it to the other parts of the economy that consume it. So that's one sector, which is or broadly the resource extraction sector. Importantly, an idea that I find important to be included is how many resources are required to operate the extraction sector itself. So this would be like thinking about an oil drilling rig that is powered by diesel generators. So there is some energy required to operate the drilling rig to get more oil out of the ground. And since diesel, in this case, is derived from oil itself, it essentially needs its own product to, um, to operate. So that's an important feedback, and this is something that goes back to the beginnings of the fossil fuel era, and uh, William Stanley Jevons thinking about the role of coal in the Industrial Revolution in the sense that coal, extracted coal, powered the first steam engines, whose job it was was to pump out water from coal mines so that you could access more coal. Uh, deeper in the coal mines before they flooded again. So it really gets to the energy efficiency of the energy itself. Uh, this is a slightly different concept than energy efficiency, but related. Yeah. So you can be very efficient at converting energy in one 
from one form to another, and that would, that's what I would call energy efficiency, taking it from one form to another. Uh, and this is a little bit different in the sense of regardless, or in some sense independent of any conversion efficiency, how much is needed to produce itself. Now, if a steam engine, for example, is more efficient at converting coal into physical power, then it's going to be able to pump water out faster and it's going to be access more uh, of the coal mine. So efficiency does enhance the ability of the energy system to operate uh, in that sense. So they're, they're different, but obviously related. A more efficient system, but in theory, at least energy system, uh, would in theory require less of its own energy input to mm -hmm. extract the next bit of energy. Well, the challenge, though, is when you're dealing with a physical universe that has limited amounts of physical energy, right? Uh, yes. And so so thinking about this question is what also drove me to want to make a macroeconomic model because there are you know, disagreements about whether the finite nature of the Earth matters or not. I think most people and let's say even economists would say, yes, the Earth's finite, but not everyone would agree that it has any meaning or, or bearing on the economy of, of consequence. And I'm on the side that there is uh, a, a meaningful impact of the finite Earth and that we're, or we, witness, we are witnessing these feedbacks. Uh, but the argument against that would be that humans are we're smart and we're ingenious and we come up with new kinds of technologies, whether they're energy-related or how we produce energy or whether they're how we consume energy by different types of computers and computing power. Uh, in the sense that do we come up with new technological innovations that overcome resource constraints? Now, I think the only way to really address this question is not to just look at top-line economic growth, but to think about if the economy is growing is one thing and one metric or another. But the second thing would be, what is the structure of the economy? Uh, it's structure with, in any sense of the word where you are allocating uh, a portion of some flow to one place or another. If you're allocating the value-added from the economy amongst wages and profits and interest payments for debt, then that distribution would be some measure of structure. Uh, there are other ways to look at structure as well, but that would be uh, perhaps one of the more common and simple, how much money goes to wages versus profits, for example. So uh, so that somewhat explains the, the resource extraction part of the model. And the other part of the model is in the sense that there's two sectors. The second one is uh, a sector that produces basically everything else in the economy in, a, in an abstract sense, a goods production sector, but their main job of this sector is to produce capital. So the extraction sector uses capital to extract resources. The goods sector uses capital to produce more capital or to produce more machines. Uh, importantly, from a what we would call biophysical perspective, to operate, in, operate these machines, requires resources input. This is like saying my car requires fuel to operate or my computer has to be plugged into the wall and have electricity. This is the equivalent concept. Now, it's obvious, it sounds trivial, but this just incorporating this basic concept is not, is basically not done in most mainstream uh, economic modeling, such as neoclassical economic modeling. The idea that you have to actually think about 
not only just capital by itself, but capital including its energy input to operate. Because as Steve Keen would say, uh, what did he say? Uh, 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 a body without food is a corpse, and uh, a machine without energy is a sculpture. Mm. So it's, it is kind of the difference between a piece of art, which is a hunk of metal, and a machine that operates that has fuel input. <coughs> so just having this basic concept in there means if there is a feedback on resource constraints and costs, then you've got this basic uh, feedback on there. So why, why do you think that is, that normally economic models do not incorporate that, uh, that element in terms of energy? Uh, it's because they're thinking about capital, the, the value of capital, and not the physical nature of capital. So they're measuring capital as units of money, usually. Mm. Excuse me. And not as a physical thing, like the numbers of buildings or numbers of cars, uh, and without the characteristic of of capital, such as, you know, what's the efficiency of an electric motor or something like this at converting electricity as a fuel input into mechanical motion, which is what a motor is, does. That's what it does. Uh, and the engine in your car takes chemical energy and the fuel and converts it to mechanical motion. Uh, so those are what they do. And so you can think about the value of the cars and the value of our buildings and things, or you can think about a little bit more what their function is and the fact that they are a physical entity. So this goes back to uh, the Cambridge capital controversies and arguing uh, what is capital and can you and can you measure it. Uh, so so this, this argument goes back a long way and the approach I'm taking is what is uh, called in, in the literature a post-Keynesian approach to modeling which was sort of the Cambridge UK side of the capital controversies. Mm. They were into thinking about capital as a physical thing and uh, as a physical systems modeler, as a background in engineering, that seems to make sense to me and so it's easy for me to, to go along with. Awesome. So where does, um, where do wages kind of come into the formula in terms of trying to account for kind of the, uh, the common man in an economic model? Because it really... You know, most economic models look at, like you said, they look at capital. They don't really look at, you know, the labor force or the workforce, per se. Right. So um, so the, the wages come in, and this is what I sort of took away from this post-Keynesian literature and, in particular, a, a model or concept developed by Steve Keen to try to understand, uh, essentially, the financial crisis um, uh, 2008, or what they would call the Minsky, what he called the Minsky, Hyman-Minsky instability hypothesis, in the sense that is the financial system inherently unstable, that it accumulates a debt that it eventually cannot pay off. This is something that can feed back eventually to wages. So the, um, the basic concept, there's two ways to think about, in some sense, the, the output of the economy. Uh, one is the uh, you know, value-added components of the economy, and this is where wages comes in. So if you somebody thought about the total gross domestic product of the United States or some other country, in my model, it's broken into four pieces. I don't have a government, so there's no government factoring in there, and you don't necessarily need it to understand these energy system feedbacks. Uh, so one is wages. So let's just say there's, whatever, $1,000 produced in, in the economy. Some portion of that goes to pay 
workers' wages. Some portion of that goes as uh, profits to the companies. Some portion goes to account for depreciation of capital, some value depreciation rate of capital. And some portion goes to interest payments in the sense that companies might acquire debt in order to invest in more capital and they're paying interest on this on this debt. So there are four, those are the four categories that I have in, uh, in my model. And it was important for me to want to think about debt and, and, and money uh, conceptually in here. And this is what I, I was able to take from some of Steve Keen's work. So, so the wage share, if you will, or the proportion of that value added that goes to wages is, uh, is a sort of metric of interest uh, you know, how much of the value produced by a company is going to people that work hourly or for salaries for a living, like myself uh, and, and, and many people. Um, and it would go, so in the sort of the crux, if you look at the United States data, the discussion about wage inequality, this is, if I were to tell people to look at one metric to understand it, it would, this is what it would be. You would look up this just kind of readily available data, state wage share of the United States, and you would see that from the end of the Great Depression until about, uh, until the mid-1970s or early 1970s, about 50% of GDP went to pay wages and salaries. And so this is about three decades, or let's see, 30, 40s, 50s, 60s, so this is about four decades of where the economy is apportioning about 50% of its output to wages. Then starting in the early 70s, this number starts to decline, and it has declined ever since, so that now about 42% of GDP is paid to wages. So it declined about 8% of GDP over the course of uh, 45 or so years, and maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, but this is the, uh, most people are earning their salaries from this wage share, and if this wage share is going down, and most of the people are earning their income from this uh, distribution, if you will, uh, then this represents why people are, are you know, middle incomes, middle class is getting a smaller piece of the pie, essentially, uh, over the last several decades. Now, so why is that, or what's the explanation for that? Most of the explanations you hear in articles or in the news relate to, say, talking about labor unions, uh, in the sense that labor unions had uh, quote unquote more bargaining power and after World War II uh, so for three decades after World War II and the sort of concept of the middle class was really established in, for the first time uh, that they could bargain for wages and when inflation would, would go up or that their wages would scale with the rate of inflation so that they would keep their purchasing power and so that happened uh, then in the 1970s uh, obviously, we had this, the oil crisis. Uh, 1970 was the peak oil production at the time for the United States. 1973 was the uh, era of oil embargo. Uh, early beginning of 1974 was a doubling of the oil price, or more slightly more than doubling of the oil price by the by OPEC. And then 1979 was the Iranian Revolution, which took several million barrels a day off the world market. So. Combine all these factors together, the price of oil went up uh, quickly, faster than people could adjust, and energy the rate of energy consumption in the U.S. and Western countries 
uh, slowed significantly and actually declined. So you combine two pieces of data here that I'll restate, and it poses the question, is it a coincidence that they seem to change at the same time? And I think it's not, and I think part of the reason I think it's not is based upon the modeling I've done. So again, specifically, the wage share is roughly 50% of GDP in the United States until from 1930 until the early 1970s, then it declines uh, for 45 years, starting in the early 1970s. The energy consumption per person, so this would be the best proxy for resource consumption generically, the uh, total primary energy consumed per person in the United States rose at about 4% a year from the 1930s until uh, the 1973, uh, with the oil embargo and the price rise in 1974. Uh, so energy consumption per person was rising quickly, let's just say exponentially. And then after 1973, it's pretty much flat. Uh, it's no longer increasing, it's holding it's a roughly constant number. So we have a knee in both of these trends, if you will, and the knee occurs at the same time in history, the early 1970s. So you can ask yourself, is this a coincidence that the structure of the economy, in terms of how much, what percentage of economic output goes to wages, would change at the same time as resource consumption was constrained, or the cost of energy in this case, went up? And uh, for, for many reasons, uh, we, we, we can go into, I think, that this is the case. And it turns out my, my modeling framework, I did not anticipate replicating this trend, I did, or replicate's not the right word because I'm not exactly modeling the United States. It's more high level or theoretical at this point. But my model mimics this exact trend in the sense that uh, when, if I have inputs into the model that make resources per person increase for a time period and then go uh, constant, whenever they go from increasing to constant, that's when the weight share starts to decrease. Mm. And it has to do with the interplay of tracking physical flows of resources and how they link to uh, the monetary flows, that the monetary flows are, in its essence, uh, derived from extracting resources from the environment. That is one of the major ways that we create value in the economy. So what? how does the story end in your model? Like, are we... Are we just bound to see ever in, ever decreasing or ever increasing wage inequality in that kind of a model? I mean, what's what's the end game? Yeah, good question. My model, of course, doesn't predict the future, but as as, as, as none of them do. Um, but what it um, it's uh, pretty simplistic, but it does give you some ideas about or some ways to think about you know. You know, what would happen if I do X, Y, or Z? Uh, and it's, it's somewhat limited, but it but it does have some insights. But the driving factor right now is the way the model is organized, and there are other ways to do it that would that would be more insightful. Is essentially how much do companies invest? That's the main mm. behavior, if you will, that I'm playing with. It's not it's not the only thing to think about. So it's limited, but um, so if companies invest. Um, enough, then they accumulate more capital. If they accumulate more capital, then this makes the depreciation share or the portion of value added allocated to depreciation go up. And the that's the explanation 
or that's the explanation I would give, or the rationale from, from, from my reasoning and my modeling, why the wage share is going down. So it, so it actually kind of two parts. Uh, so over the long term, it's if, if, let's just say if that, if companies keep investing in more capital in a resource-constrained world, and by resource-constrained here, let's just say constant resource consumption over time, so once they reach that condition, if they keep investing more, they will uh, then depreciation, they will accumulate more capital, and over time this will make the wage share of the economy decline because it takes up a larger and larger, larger portion of a net output that really isn't growing much anymore. So it's taking a larger share of a roughly constant pie, and wages effectively are the thing, or is the portion that takes the hit in a capitalist economy. So the assumption is I'm going to account for depreciation. Uh, I'm going to pay my interest payments. Of course, people can go bankrupt or companies. But assuming you're going to make interest payments, you're going to account for depreciation. And the only reason the companies are going to be around is if they make some minimum number of profits, or at least uh, profitable to some minimal degree. The only thing that can get smaller in this sort of share of things is wages. So that's effectively what happens. Now, during the transition from a, an economy that's increasing its resource consumption rate per person to one that goes to roughly constant resource consumption rate, the, the, the amount of debt that the companies acquire goes up a little bit more rapidly, and depending on how you play with it. It, it can go up and then get paid off, uh, or it can go up and then uh, essentially just keep growing until it collapses the system. Um, and well, so that's a, another reason why the wage share initially declines. So if the wage share is roughly constant, once interest payments start increasing as a share, as the companies acquire debt, the interest, the debt accelerates, the accumulation of debt accelerates when, it, when the economy reaches peak resource consumption. And then when that acceleration of debt happens, the debt ratio, the total debt to GDP of the economy goes up for a while. Therefore, the interest rates, the interest payments as a share of value-added go up, and that takes away from wages as well. So depending how you play with it, that can go up and come back down. Um, but So both of those things play off, and both of those things are what uh, essentially are, are shown in the data. It, the U.S. data shows that private sector debt, like corporate debt and financial debt, were going up at some rate until the 1970s, or, and then they were going up at a higher rate after the 1970s, in particular due to policies from Reagan and things lowering. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I would yeah. um, say, I would interject that looking at, like, bringing it up to date to modern day, to current day, I mean, you're looking at industry investing more um, now, using more debt, taking on more leverage, and increasing that share, and, you know, the especially with really investments into artificial intelligence, um, eliminating a lot of jobs in the coming years, that that squeeze in terms of wages is going to become even more acute. Right. So this, I guess, general concept goes, you know, back to Karl Marx uh, further in terms of what, what is the nature of capitalism and uh, in some sense, markets uh, focused on variable costs or reducing variable costs to be competitive. 
uh, our, our capitalism is trying to reduce input costs to a large degree uh, as a tactic to increase profits and decreasing labor costs is one of those. And energy combined with capital or energy and machines have effectively been the way to reduce the cost of labor input if you're, you're no longer using people for their no. muscles to do stuff like since the beginning of the industrial revolution and substituting machines plus energy to do that that is essentially behind the prosperity that we know today at its at its core so at a, at a fundamental level and part of what i would say that. what i would say though what i would say interject though is during the 30s to the 70s that there was substantial investment into education to help people transition jobs into newer technologies so that they were able to kind of maintain usefulness within the economy. And I would say like that same sort of investment is not taking place now, which doesn't really help for future economic prospects. Uh, right, right. No, that's good. I, I pretty much agree with that. So we could ask, I, I don't have the answer here, but a good interesting question would be, you know, is it easier to, let's just say, invest in education in a, in a populace for new kinds of jobs? Yeah, like not working on the farms, doing as much physical labor. Uh, when you have an increasing resource base or an increasing resource consumption versus not, uh, the jobs are different now, even uh, you know, more intellectual and, and to the to the point of, as you mentioned, artificial intelligence relating jobs that uh, require some some level of thinking. Um, so yeah, this is a good it's a good question. They're all things about the size of the economy. How much does size matter? So in some sense, mainstream economics doesn't think of a economy of one size as being fundamentally different than an economy that's a hundred times bigger, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about physical systems and uh, resource flows uh, to maintain it. The, the bigger you are, the more resources you need to just maintain your size or maintain yeah. the, whatever your capabilities you have. And so that becomes a, a real a real concern, like your overhead costs, if you will, or the, just the cost to, make, to keep, your, yeah, keep sure. doing what you're doing is, yeah. becomes a bigger deal. So how does so let's um, transition it to the energy transition to clean energy? Like how does that come into play within your model? Like how do you make that comparison of the within the model of fossil fuels versus looking at transitioning the economy to a clean economy? All right. So uh, the short answer is I don't have the answer yet. But the, but, the, but the longer answer is that's essentially the, the driving question of why I wanted to make this model. And the important, or one of the important points is already stated, how much energy does it take to make, or how much resources does it take to make new capital, and does it take to operate this capital? That's fundamental for understanding the role of the energy system. And if you don't do that, I would argue that you probably don't have a model that actually can answer a question about an energy transition in the sense that it's incapable of informing that question. Uh, of course, the irony or sad part is that most models used to inform the energy transition fall into that trap in the sense that they're mathematically incapable of informing it. Hmm. Uh, but the, the way it would happen, so my model right now just has one generic resource, but the way you do it is you would make you know more than 
characterize one uh, like a fossil resource. It's physical stuff out there that you uh, extract and either burn it or it becomes other things like plastics. Uh, and then another one is something like a renewable flow resource that would require capital to extract the flow like wind and solar panels, something like that. And so you, to, to understand this transition, you need one fundamental way to think about the dynamics of the transition, like the fundamental way to think about time, which means you can't use it, uh, or uh, at least effectively in my mind, uh, a, a general equilibrium model or a model that assumes you're always clearing markets and not accumulating debt. Uh, so that's why I have all these features in the model. Uh, so one second thing is talk about debt. So a lot of times when people talk about a clean energy transition, they talk about needing some sort of innovative finance or something like this. In the end, it means I, I need to figure out, I'm, I don't have all the money to pay for it right now. I want to pay for it over time. So debt transfers resource consumption across time uh, in the form of money. So you need, you need debt, you need fundamental dynamics. And then if you have these two different types of resources, you can play off with the rate of investment in each. Because essentially the, the thought with the energy transition is I'm going to invest a lot in capital uh, at, a, at some higher rate, uh, which means some machines in the world are, are making these solar panels and wind turbines and people are being paid to install them and storage systems and, and, and whatever else is going on. And the faster you go through a transition, the more people and the more resources and the more energy is going to be used during that time period. So if I transition in 50 years, uh, let's just say, you know, the amount of energy I would need is, let's just say it's one, some, some unit. If I transition in 10 years, well, then I, the rate of flow of energy I need during that time period is roughly five times more. So I need to consume things five times faster. I need to have five times as many more people working on it and even five times as many factories that are making energy stuff. Mm. And the more of the materials and people and capital that's involved in the energy sector, the less there is in the non-energy sectors huh. to some degree. And this is like sort of the utility death spiral idea, except at the entire macroeconomic level. How many people are working in the energy sector and how many resources are flowing there and how many people are paying for that product? <laughs> so the more people you move into that sector during a transition or the more materials and energy, <clears throat> the fewer people there are paying for it, which means the cost of it goes up. And if the cost goes up enough, it, at least in theory, and this is why I wanted to make a model to explore this, could, it, could you invest so much so quickly that you essentially recreate the conditions that we saw, or a similar type condition that you saw in the 1970s when energy prices uh, went up and the economy spent more than 8% uh, on 8% of GDP or 8% of the spending on energy was over 8% of GDP on that kind of metric. And anytime we have spent more than 8% of GDP on energy, this has been a recession. Yeah. But that wasn't, you know, a choice to, to spend that much on energy per se. Uh, but if you transition quickly, uh, this feedback would occur. And the question is, can it occur, occur so fast that it might put the economy into recession? Yeah. I mean, the model that I use in the work that I do, it, it looks at, it looks at um, commodity prices spiking. It's not that commodity prices go up over time. 
It's that they go up all of a sudden in a couple of months by a large amount, 20, 30, 40 percent, and it basically gives the economy a heart attack. So it's kind of the same uh, thing. So one right, of the... Right. I understand that on a decadal scale or, or several year scale, if you, not, not necessarily a spike, but an investment-induced spike, I guess. But, well, I mean, you can see it develop over a series of months um, if you're looking at looking at it from day to day. So it's, it's a matter of scale. Um, what in that model that you just described though, like where do externalities play in? Like how do you financially account for, let's say the forest fires in California burning half the state or, you know, hurricanes destroying, you know, North Carolina's, um, farming industry or the Midwest's, you know, ability to plant food, or, you know, Puerto Rico, what happened with Maria. How do you incorporate externalities related to climate change as kind of an expense in, in a model, in a financial model? Uh, right. So, uh, yeah, short answer, I haven't done anything like that in my model yet, but the way uh, that people think about these things is you either... Uh, in terms of climate change or climate damages, you either have some way to think about capital that actually gets destroyed uh, as a function of temperature or some event. So let's say I think I have, whatever, 10 factories and, you know, 100 homes in that area and a hurricane comes through and you're like, well, I only have two working factories now and 20 homes. So, so the actual quantity of capital that's out there just goes down and less capital as a in some sense, of, by definition, a less wealthy economy and has less capacity to do stuff. So you could posit that stuff just gets destroyed. Um, the other thing is you could say, posit that, well, the capital or the stuff out there is still there, but it can't operate as well as it used to. Uh, so at some point in your model, you have to make some assumption about the quote-unquote number that relates to the productivity uh, of a piece of capital. Um, in, in my model, the, the productivity of capital to produce new capital is just a constant number all the time. But the productivity of the extraction sector capital goes down as a function of extracting more resources. So if you, the more resources you extract, the harder it, take, the harder it is, uh, or at least the more energy it takes to extract the next bit of resources. Mm -hmm. So this prevents you from being able to essentially afford to extract the last bit of a resource. It would be the equivalent reason why we'll never run out of oil is because you'll never afford to get the last bit of oil out of the ground. Of course, that question of when, if you, if or when you reach that point or for what reason is complicated and people argue about. Uh, but those would be the two things. So if it's agriculture and uh, the corn belt, you would posit that the somehow productivity of land is lower because of temperature or that you need more resource inputs like water for irrigation to counteract it. And then, of course, irrigation is a cost and uh, pumping the water around could be a direct cost uh, to deal with something like that. Or you could just soil depletion. The soil is just not as fertile and requires more fertilizer input. So the inputs to produce the same yield, you need more water and more nitrogen, for example, uh, to produce the same yield. Uh, so you can posit things like this. Of course, that's, that's a detailed subject in Excel to understand uh, that kind of dynamic. Um, yeah. 
doing work on, you know, essentially rejuvenating soil to not be using nitrogen fertilizers. You know, it takes maybe a decade or more to kind of rejuvenate the soil, but to make it uh, incredible type yields uh, from the better rotation of crops and letting the soil sort of uh, naturally regenerate. Yeah. But it's not, not, my, not my area, but those are the things that come to mind from your question. No, that's awesome. Um, you know, honestly, I think we could talk for hours, and I, I know for a fact that we could, um, but we're, we're kind of at the, uh, the limit here. Um, I'm going to include inside the um, description of this program the links to a couple of the uh, uh, presentations that you've done so people can kind of dig more into the visuals related to the concepts that we've uh, talked about and can kind of think them and turn about turn them over in their own heads. Um, if people want to learn more about and connect up with you, how can they reach out to you? Uh, right, they can yeah certainly go to my uh, website terryking.com. Uh, you can type my name in and University of Texas and the favorite search engine, and you'll you'll find me. So my emails are on the website and uh, work phone number uh, on the website. Uh, and I am on Twitter. I don't do too much Twitter. I do a little bit, but uh, that's Carrie W. King uh, for Twitter. Um, and my website has, as you noted, you found my presentation. My website has a link to presentations, which some of them you can download the PDF file. Some of them are videos of past presentations on these, on these subjects. Very um, cool. Well, if you don't mind, I would love to uh, follow up in the coming months as you, uh, as we just turn this over in our heads some more and kind of get some more clarity around this uh, these concepts because I think you know we we kind of got it. We have to get to a place where we can kind of visualize where we're going in the the course of events and kind of transitioning the economy. Increasing part of this conversation. That's why I kind of do this work. So I appreciate you uh, giving me a part of it. Uh, there is a white paper on the model um, that you can link to as well. That's on the, my website, and uh, that paper is under review. So we'll see how that gets published this year. Um, there's also an American Scientist article from 2015 on my website. That's the title is "The Rising Costs of Resources mm. and Global Indicators of Change." So that's kind of an introductory article for. Uh, people who don't think about this all the time that might be good for, for people to read and that's free online if you click the link it's still on the website of the American Scientist magazine sounds good well thanks a lot for taking the time and uh, I'll talk to you soon thanks Gary